Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tom Keen, back in the studio with me here in New York City. Very pleased to say that Mark Chandler joins us. You've got a new shot, Mark. Just talk to me about what you're up to now. Yeah, so I recently joined a Bannockburn Global Foreign Exchange, uh, which is based in Cincinnati. They specialize in financial services, uh, private equity, mid-sized corporates. I get to do a lot of the same kind of thing that I do uh, analyzing the global capital markets, but for a different client base, uh, more private equity corporations as opposed to where I was before, where I'd be focusing more on the asset managers. So talk to me about what you tell them about the, the mess that's emerging in Europe once again. It's kind of a classic European confrontation between populists and this time in Italy and between unelected officials in the European Union. We had the finance minister, Giovanni Tria, um, go up against some of the other finance ministers in Europe in the last 24 hours. Um, his country's fiscal push meeting a European Commission head that compared what was happening um, to taking us towards a Greek-style crisis. Yeah, I think it's a bit over the top, but that's Juncker for you. I think he often has these kind of over-the-top type of comments. I do think that there is a confrontation brewing, but I'm not sure it's really going to be on the, st- on the level of Greece. I think that both the Italians have learned something, but also the EU has learned something from Greece, and that is that the fiscal austerity could be counterproductive. Now, I was saying before is that what I think that Italy needs the most is growth, and, can, and that means that austerity might not help growth, because here's what's really happened. When you look at the different charts and you compare what's happened in Italy, growth is really the deficit. That is to say that they really underperform in growth. And if this new fiscal plan can help stimulate growth by having a flatter tax for something like a million households, 15% tax. And if they can have some more social spending, the idea is it can lift growth and thereby reducing the debt to GDP through stronger growth. The market right now is not pricing a positive outcome. Um, we haven't had a day of gains for the euro since last Tuesday. So it's been about a week. It's just been a weaker euro story bleeding through. Italian bonds are taking a bit of pain as well. The glass half full approach to all of this is that maybe the moves outside of Italian bonds are mild. Maybe the moves outside of Italy are mild. But the glass half empty approach to all of this is that correlations are picking up. And you can see the correlations picking up with Italy and what's happening in Italy. Does that concern you, Mark? Well, it concerns me, but I, I would really tell the story a little bit differently. The, the key thing, I think, that made the dollar turn last week was not what was going on in Italy. That didn't happen until the very end of the week. What happened was the Federal Reserve met and confirmed that they will not only tighten another time in December this year, but they're sticking with three hikes next year. And the ECB says, sorry, we're not going to be able to raise rates till the end of next summer at the earliest. And the Bank of Japan seems nowhere near close to raising interest rates. So I think that uh, what the Federal Reserve did was signal the continued divergence. And then the other factor that I would want to put as part of the story is the huge rally in oil prices. Another leg up today. And this is because I, I primarily supply concerns. And here is, you know, people are talking about how uh, Trump is succeeding with his tactics with uh, South Korea. NAFTA 2.0, but one area that has been very successful is getting countries to participate in this embargo when it's not just uh, countries around Iran, but we're talking about France and the Netherlands uh, cutting back on their oil from, from the Iranians a month ahead of time. And so I think that the supply concern, so what's the problem here? Strong dollar because of Fed, higher oil prices weighing on emerging markets, well, and the Italian story. I, I mean, not only is, is Chairman Paul central banker to the world central banker to emerging markets, but he's also central banker to the oil cartel. 
I mean, the, again, the prof- he alluded to that in the press conference. Maybe he'll talk more about it in his speech today at the National Association for Business. But um, he, he is central banker to all these interplaying features, isn't he? Well, I, I don't know if he, I'd say he's central banker to that, but I would say is that what happens in the U.S. still matters for a lot of these countries. Exactly. But I mean, he does not have to take into account what happens to yeah, Saudi but, politics or Saudi real when it makes policy. I, I mean, John, let me do this. I mean, you know, hold on. What I are mean, you up to over there? I, I'm doing Brent. I'm trying to bring it up here, just a log chart of, of, of Brent. And I'm sorry, since the middle of August, it's a straight line up. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a little bit of persistence to the trend. There's this drip, drip going on. It's like the Chinese water torture on emerging markets. And what it is, is a stronger oil price, a stronger dollar, and just the yields in the United States just keep climbing. And the Federal Reserve is not backing away from rate hikes. Do you have a more constructive view on EM with that as your backdrop? Unfortunately not. It's difficult I mean, to, right? I think so. I think that, but here's what that gives me the idea, though, that, uh, that why I think I'm still pretty negative on EM. It's not just because of these macro forces, but every se- so often I hear from my emerging market analysts in con- context that time to pick a bottom. And so we just had one of those phases, uh, maybe it was about three or four weeks ago, where, the emerging, where a lot of these emerging market analysts said, oh, we're at cheap value now, so let's, uh, uh, emerging markets are a good buy. And so same thing with Italian bonds. I think it was one of the largest asset managers had, had upped their, up their uh, yeah. portfolio investment in Italian bonds just, for the, just in time for this to happen. But there is a price of the story, and the price of the story in EM has got pretty cheap. And within sort of emerging markets, you've had some pretty aggressive rallies in pockets of emerging markets in various securities, various foreign exchange markets, various currencies. And Mark, there must be some opportunities there that you've identified. There are opportunities, but from, 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 my, from my point of view, and I think medium-term investors, it's too early to go back into emerging markets. You say, well, there's value there. I say, yes, there's value, but it's going to be more value shortly. Well, I guess it depends what hat you're wearing. If you're a short-term sort of FX trader, day trader, then maybe there's some opportunities out there. Are you exactly. thinking more about digging a hole and starting a business in some of these countries at the moment, Mark? <laughs> I wouldn't, but I, 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 I take your point that for short-term traders, there, there's, I mean, there's enough volatility in the emerging market currencies to, to, to they have a short a short term punt, but for long term, people are thinking about their pension funds. People are thinking about uh, endowments. I think too early for emerging markets. I'd be for, more comfortable maybe the middle of next year when I think the Federal Reserve will be done or nearly done with the rate hikes. Mark Chandler, great to catch up with you, Bannockburn Global Forex Chief Market Strategist and Managing Partner. Some of our guests are deceptive. They like to drive things down to simple concepts, usually simple concepts that provide courage in crisis, that provide uh, the ability to be in the market when you shouldn't be in the market. And even if there's pain, you're there and you're organized. But what is very deceptive is underneath the simplicity There's a lot of first-order principles and a lot of academics. He's out of Lehigh University, out of Wharton, uh, and he's not only a CFA, but also, very cool, a certified public accountant as well, and that would be Robert Dahl of Duveen. Bob, I mean, CFA, CPA, how did your brain get through that? I mean, I've never gotten debits and credits right. (laughs) 
I guess I had nothing else better to do but read a book and study and take a test, my friend. Well, it's a, it's a very <laughs> cool set of academics around it. Take the academics now to this market. Acad- I mean, in terms of like, like CAPM and all the rest of the mumbo jumbo, how do you stay in this market? Uh, you stay in because you recognize that uh, we've got an amazing uh, earnings profile. Yes, for the bears, it's uh, decelerating, but it's still going to be plus 20 instead of plus 25. That's all pretty good news. Um, look, there are going to be bumps along right. the way. Valuation's no longer cheap. We've got a little competition. We're getting a little expensive versus the rest of the world. So, you know, these things you know, bite at the edges, uh, I, I think, without question. But um, you still want to be there. This bull market's not okay. over. Okay, fancy guy. Let's, John, let's dazzle people here with a Y-intercept on the Y-axis. Okay, I'm talking to Courtney down at Georgetown, and we're talking log linear cap M theory. The fact is it's hinged on a straight line sitting on the y-axis, and that is the anchor called the risk-free rate. I think a lot of our, our listeners understand the risk-free rate. Bob Dahl, do you have a clue where the risk-free rate is? Does Jerome Powell know where the risk-free rate is? I think no one knows, and it does seem to be moving around. Um, and we're getting closer to it. That's why the Fed conversations are getting harder. Uh, we've been in a period for the last couple of years, as you know, where um, the Fed's in the process of normalizing. So you know, next meeting, they're going to meet, and they're going to raise rates. Next meeting, and that went on and on. We're getting to the point now where we're approaching neutral, whatever that number is. And therefore, these conversations get a little tougher. Well, talk to me about the competition for capital that just comes from vanilla generic T-bills. Um, 2%, more than on a one-month T-bill, a five-year note now with a yield of almost 3%, Bob. Is there some real competition for capital in a way that there wasn't 12 months ago? Yeah, it's emerging competition. Look, I think I'll get better than that in, in the stock market, but it, it, the, the number you gave me is no longer zero. You know, it was a while where... where where cash returned close to zero, and I could get a 2% yield in the stock market plus capital appreciation as earnings came through. And we're beginning to creep in with some other conversations. It's not the only asset in town anymore. Well, let's talk about the portfolio construction then, Bob, and, and going forward. Tom talks about the risk-free rate. There's some real talk that the risk might be in the risk-free asset, which is the treasury market and other bond markets as well. And in the next downturn, maybe they won't offer you that hedge. Bob, are we, are we having that discussion now, or is it still too early to have that discussion? I, I think it's early because um, I can't see a recession out my window. Um, uh, you know, we'll get another recession, but um, I'm enjoying and trying to figure out yeah. where to be, where the earnings are, are, are going to come from. But, yeah, we're unlikely to get in the next downturn returns on cash like we typically do. Yeah. Rates will peak at a lower level than we're used to, John, is the way to say it. Bob Dahl, if you look outside Bob Dahl's window, He's got tacked up the Ibbotson chart back to 1925, <laughs> log SPX. But to that point, Bob, in the one of the most famous, good morning, Mr. Ibbotson, Professor Ibbotson, if you're listening up at Yale. Bob Dahl, what's really serious here is we've forgotten what a correction is. We've, cut, we, we've forgotten what a bear market is. Explain to our audience where part of the game is you have to withstand the emotion of bear markets. You and I haven't had that conversation in about 14 and a half years. No, we haven't. Thankfully, we haven't had to. Uh, the, the, the bottom line and the most simple way to put it is stocks do go down. 
Um, and it's usually accompanied by uh, uh, some sort of problem with the economy, which I repeat is not visible yet, but we will get there. And uh, you have to know what you own. You have to know what your time frame is. You know, I, somebody said to me recently, I, you know, can you tell me what to buy um, if my time horizon is to the end of the year? And I said, yeah, cash. <laughs> because, because in lots of short-term periods, stocks go down. Um, you'll look at those same Ibbotson charts and you look at the annual numbers and you'll find out stocks go down um, more than 25% of the years. Um, so so uh, we're, we are so, so spoiled because it's been such a beautiful ride. Yeah. And it brings to mind financial advisors, some who say, you know, I'm just buying the index fund or I'm just buying the ETF because they're safe. This word, they're, they're this, this word is really important, John Farrow, spoiled. It's unfortunately accurate. I'm as guilty yes. of it as anyone. All, all of us. I mean, we've had six straight mm-hmm. years of valuation appreciation. PE is going up six straight years. We're breaking that oh, trend this John. year. Six in a row has never happened before. That's the, how spoiled we are. The got. VIX is back to 16. Oh, no. What a world. Yeah, and Bob, just to round things out, <clears> I mean, you and I have gone back and forth on this before there's a difference between peak margins and peak markets is that something that you're kind of pushing to clients at the moment as well yes 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 i hear um a lot of bearish people say well peak earnings we've grown 25 percent that's going to decelerate therefore i should sell stock careful if 20 plus 25 earnings goes yeah. to minus five yes sell some stocks but if we're going from plus yeah. 25 to plus 20 not so fast can you own the banks here mr doll I can. Here's my problem. They're still so over-owned and over-believed. Yes, they're pretty cheap. Yes, the fundamentals are reasonably good. They're not perfect. But they're, as they've been since the first of the year, over-believed mm-hmm. and over-owned. I can't get out of a meeting with a bunch of financial advisors where they don't ask, what about the banks? I, I need that question to stop being asked before I can really get yeah. interested. Bob Dahl, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With Nuveen. Ford, you know, it's it, for them to say that about the hurricanes is a big deal. It's got to be a huge. Tell people this is about the effect. decline in sales last month, eleven yeah. percent down versus uh, the estimate for nine percent. Once yeah. again, Ford Motor September U.S. vehicle sales decline eleven point two percent. Seventy thousand uh, F Series trucks made, and you wonder how much of that is made in Canada, how much is made in Mexico, or the United States. That was part Kansas. of our theme on trade Kansas yesterday. City. Here is Christine Lagarde. The impact is there already. And if you think of you know, the, the, the impact that all the measures that have been floating around would have on global growth, then you're really talking about a major risk that would impact uh, particularly China, because it's right. obviously one of the targets and the main targets. <clears throat> but also all the other countries that are part of the supply chain or that provide raw materials. So you're talking about emerging market economies and many low-income countries as well, where a lot of the hardship and the difficult decisions and the financing is so badly needed. You know, how can we advocate domestic revenue mobilization in countries of sub-Saharan Africa if they can no longer participate in trade or supply chain organizations Mm -hmm. because of the threat applying to trade at large? The the larger threat, and to bring it to this weekend and 
Canada and the United States, the USMCA, and I've had to write it down here, it's such a new phrase for me, and I understand Think this, of YMCA. It's USMCA. It's a song. I yeah. got it. Okay. Within this and within USMCA, now I've got the song in my head. I can't continue. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to dance it. That wouldn't work out. Any I would take. Um, if I look at USMCA and I look at the dictate of what President Trump has very clearly advocated. It is an, an effort that brings in Canada, brings in Mexico. And I don't want to get you in trouble here, but I'm going to ask, did Canada and Mexico cave into the rhetoric of President Trump? And is that something we're going to see in the coming years as a president looks at multilateral and brings it over to a unilateral approach? You know, it's, it's hard for me to say uh, and to make any comment about the agreement because we haven't had a chance to review it. So I've, I've read the same articles Fair. as, as you have. Idea. Uh, but it's been in the making for 13 months, so it's 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 obvious that there must have been uh, back and forth, bargaining, trade-off, and that is the whole point about negotiations. Two things that I'm quite pleased about. One is um, it exists, and to have this trilateral agreement, trilateral agreement between Mexico, U.S., and Canada is, I think, a very positive I signal. I'm yes. encouraged yes. with that. Uh, because not so long ago, many, many of us were uh, in fear that mm -hmm. there would be nothing. So there is an agreement, number one. Number two, what I hear is that the services are also partly or entirely, I don't know, I haven't read it yet, covered. And I think that is really uh, showing the way that TPP, for instance, was, was doing. In other words, expanding beyond the products that cross borders, to services that also do, but not physically, because many of them are, are digital. There is a lot of upside to be had from services being included in the reduction of barriers. Uh, Christine Lagarde at the International Monetary Fund. Pim, this was a really interesting meeting. This was the kickoff to their annual meeting in Indonesia in three years. It's in Marrakesh with uh, Indonesian authorities in the front row in their embassy as well, of course, shattered by the earthquake. I was going to say, overwhelmed by natural yeah. disaster. We were literally in the, in the green room in the back, and the ambassador of Indonesia sent his regrets because he had an emergency uh, meeting with their foreign minister as well. So there was a whole overlay of emotion, and you had one part the IMF brass, one part IMF staffers, and also a lot of Bloomberg surveillance guests and hosts in economics and politics of Washington, Douglas Holtz-Eakin, uh, among others of the CBO there, listening for the nuances. You know, they, the speech, um, they're listening there for one or two sentences of what's the tone towards the world economic outlook next week, and of course, her thoughts on all this trade issue. and Tom Keene on Amazon and on the state of our labor economy without question our interview of the day if not of the week. He is Alan Kruger of Princeton University. I put him in a category with a Nobel laureate Michael Spence in that there's an exceptionally broad spectrum of economics and social studies that Professor Kruger does but he is definitive. Card and Kruger 1994 on the minimum wage. Alan Kruger, were you surprised that Jeff Bezos set a $15 minimum wage level for Amazon nationwide? 
I think he did the right thing. Um, I think what Amazon has done is what one expects of a responsible large company, especially at a time when the economy is doing so well. I think this is also an indication that wages are determined by more than just supply and demand, that companies have a lot of discretion over how much they pay their workers. Within this, Alan, is that maxim and the fear that if you raise the minimum wage, all other wages grow up, go up rather, and uh, labor, uh, and employers lose control of their income statement. Is that a legitimate fear, whether it's the success of Amazon or it's a mom and pop shop in New Jersey barely getting by? Well, I think it's a sign of a healthy economy that we're going to see uh, wages rise. Wages are gradually picking up slower than you would expect, given the unemployment rate below 4%. And, and of course, you need a balance. Uh, you don't want wages to be so high that it puts businesses out of business. But I don't think we're at much risk of that right now. Alan Kruger, could you share with people a little anecdote or story about your work comparing restaurant jobs in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and what you learned? Sure. What David Card and I discovered 25 years ago was that the traditional uh, supply and demand model that I was taught and that I taught my students is much more complicated in real life. And study after study has found that minimum wage increases uh, don't reliably have an adverse effect on employment. The job market's much more complicated. When employers pay higher wages, they uh, have lower turnover, they have higher productivity, they find it easier to recruit workers and fill vacancies. And these effects can offset the traditional demand side uh, law of demand effect of a higher wage, uh, possibly putting downward pressure on employment. If that's the case, why don't you see a revision in the way experts and economists who advise the government, why don't they revise their description of what a minimum wage increase would do? I think this is one area where we have seen major change in the economics profession and in public policy. Since our work, the governments in the UK and Germany have imposed nationwide minimum wages substantially above the US level. I think the way the minimum wage is presented in textbooks is much more balanced now, much more even-handed, explains that the job market is not perfectly competitive, that employers have market power, that bargaining power, monopsony power, the ability of companies to have discretion over wages yeah. uh, influences the job market. Now, Professor, as you do so well, you mentioned the word, which is a confusing word. Folks, this is how you move from a B- minus to a C- minus under Kruger and economics is try to tackle monopsony. Okay, Alan, it's a rubber plantation in Singapore where the British plantation owner controls the price, the labor wage, and everything of all the people pulling the rubber out of the trees. That's the classic uh, British model. Bring that over to America now, where we read the stories and the fabulous stories uh, in Atlantic Magazine about the gig economy, about moving cardboard boxes around Manhattan, about Uber and all that. Is the gig economy so much an atomization of labor that it's going to drive us to a new minimum wage? ethos? Well, I think the gig economy is more competitive than, uh, say, an Amazon fulfillment center, uh, more competitive in the sense that there's much easier entry and exit. But the gig economy is still maybe 1% of employment in the U.S. I think it's uh, not even the tail wagging the dog. It, it's um, 
barely having an impact on the aggregate economy. What's much more important are companies like Walmart and Amazon, the largest employers, and they have kind of a moat around them. You know, they're a bit of an island to themselves, and they have uh, the ability to uh, influence how much the workers are paid. They're not just passively taking... So well, this is critical. In the new technology, in Michael Mabusian's uh, capture by one or two large players, they have monopsonistic tendencies where Amazon or Apple or others control the wage because there's no alternative job. Is that true? I think that there's limited alternative jobs. It's costly for workers to make, make a move. You know, the fact that Amazon did this by setting a minimum wage is fascinating because they could have said we're just going to raise wages across the board by 10%. That's what the competitive market is. But this is broader than sort of tailoring wages to the competitive market. This is uh, saying we're going to be a responsible employer. We think the low-wage workers deserve a higher, uh, higher income. Um, and I think one of the reasons they weren't having that higher income in the past is because companies have stronger bargaining power over their workers. Alan Kruger, just quickly, uh, immigration. Do you have any thoughts on how immigration affects wages and unemployment? Especially when the labor market's tight, immigration is an important source of, of labor supply, especially in some fields like construction. And uh, I worry that we're going to start to see some bottlenecks in the U.S. economy because we're uh, changing our immigration policy and making it much more restrictive. Alan Kruger, thank you so much. Look for much more uh, on this. Professor Kruger of Princeton University, of course, always helping us out on uh, matters of economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.